You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. One of the big hurdles in energy transition has been mobilizing trillions of dollars worth of capital to build solutions to our energy and climate problems. And there have been many facets of this problem. The assets were too new and bankers lacked familiarity with how to underwrite them or assess their risk. Some of the assets weren't considered investment grade or the definition of what makes a clean tech deal investment grade wasn't widely understood. The returns weren't high enough to interest players like private equity and hedge funds who were willing to finance deals under $100 million in size, or the deals weren't big enough to interest fixed income players like pension funds and insurance companies who would be willing to accept single-digit returns if the assets were very low risk, and so on and so on. What was needed was a set of generally accepted standards for underwriting instruments that address the climate change problem and a standard way of packaging those investments in size. The solution to the packaging problem was what are being called climate bonds, or alternatively, green bonds, financial instruments that look and act and can be rated and traded exactly like any other bond, only they're explicitly targeted at investments in climate change solutions. And the solution to the underwriting standards problem was the Climate Bonds Initiative. Based in London, this non-governmental organization facilitates the growth of the climate bond market by organizing major banks and investors to establish and recognize a common set of standards for what qualifies as a green bond, how they should be rated, and so on. The Climate Bonds Initiative defines a green bond as one for which the issuer declares that the proceeds will be applied, either by ring fencing, direct project exposure, or securitization, toward climate and or environmental sustainability purposes. By creating a common set of standards for risk assessment and rating investment quality, it is hoped that green bonds can rapidly accelerate and scale up the capital that's flowing toward climate change solutions, both for mitigation and for adaptation. So instead of entrepreneurs working on energy transition and climate, spending all their time trying to explain to governments how they can finance a rapid transition and counting on the public purse to do the heavy lifting, the power of the much larger private sector can be unleashed to come up with the solutions we need. To help us understand this somewhat arcane but immensely important aspect of the energy transition puzzle, we are very pleased to have on today's show the CEO of the Climate Bonds Initiative, Sean Kidney. Welcome, Sean, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you, Chris. So let's start with some basic numbers just to help our listeners understand the magnitude of the green bond market. How big is the green bond market globally right now, and how quickly has it been growing? Well, we had about $81 billion of issuance this past year, 2016. The previous year was $42 billion. So it more basically doubled during the course of the year. The year before that, at a bit over $37 billion, I think. And the year before that, it was much lower at $12 billion. So, you know, it's been, in terms of the three or four-year curve, it's been a pretty dramatic growth line from a low base. 
I mean, there are $100 trillion of bonds outstanding globally, right? This is still a modest. And we have universe. We have about $170 or $180 billion of outstanding at the moment. I haven't checked the figures today. So it's a fairly small piece of the ocean, but it's rapidly growing and it's getting a lot of headlines. So why do investors bother? Well, you've got about 60 trillion US of investors who signed these statements about climate change being the biggest long-term threat to their portfolios. These are actuaries, right? They read the sites, insurance funds and pension funds especially. Then they're trying to figure about 40-year matching of assets and liabilities, and they say, oh, I better just find out about this risk factor, and then they, their faces go white when they read the papers. And they go back to their bosses and say, what the hell do we do? Because they actually run their portfolio on a three to five year horizon, even though they've got 40 year liability asset matching challenges. Now the green bond comes along and it's got basically this much the same yield and risk as other bonds, 80% investment grade. They can slot it into their portfolio without a blink as a result, but it's got this bonus fit, which is that it addresses in some form their long term risk factors uh, that they decided are there around climate change. And they're saying, great, a get out of jail free card, give me some. And that's driving investor demand. Hmm. So insurance, uh, reinsurance companies actually would be a, a big part of the market here. Yeah, absolutely. So some of the big buyers are people like Swiss Re and Munich Re and General Re, and then Zurich Insurance and Manulife, in fact, was one of the early big buyers in the area. Prudential, Viva, a lot, you know, in Japan, Nippon Mutual has a big holding, very much insurance initially. And then you've seen pension funds and others, TIAA CRIF, for example, has a big investor in green bonds, I mean, Calsters in California, and so on. Hmm. Okay. So back in episode 21 of this show, we talked with Christine Ibsinger of Power for All about some of the challenges involved in getting big development banks to fund decentralized energy solutions, like the sort that companies like SolarAid and Off-Grid Electric are rapidly deploying across Africa in particular, instead of just the big conventional power plants in which those banks have traditionally invested. And I got the impression that there were a whole host of technical issues involved here, like how do you assign a credit rating to thousands of customers who may not have any formal credit history or who only need to borrow very small amounts, as well as there being some cultural issues like the very structure of compensation schemes at the banks themselves, which tend to reward big projects over you know small decentralized projects. So can green bonds help address some of these issues or... Are green bonds subject to the same sorts of problems that have stymied development bank funding in distributed renewable energy projects all along? You know, I think this, the development bank funding plans is a bit of a separate issue. Let's put aside that for a minute. We're working with some lenders in East Africa who are using lending programs through mobile phone companies to make available to villages all around East Africa solar panels linked up to a radio or a cooker or a television. And these are micro loans. Now, the prepayments come through the mobile phone. Now, there's something very special when you can convince the mobile phone company to collect the monthly repayment because no one ever throws away their mobile phone. <laughs> so the collection rate is like brilliant. Right. Not only that, for the purposes of trying to do a creditworthiness rating on an ABS structure, we've seen one from a company called Lendable, New York-based company working in Kenya. 
you've got FICO scores because you can use the mobile phone repayment data of the previous years these people have usually owned a mobile phone to give you a credit rating score. So mm-hmm. there are ways around this, you know, when it's actually working. And really, East Africa's been a, a real hotbed of innovation in this particular area. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. The full episode covers much more. In order to hear the rest, point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and become a member. Annual subscriptions start at just $60 a year, and monthly subscriptions are also available. It's like subscribing to your favorite magazine or newspaper, but we prefer to think of it as buying us a pint once a month as a way of saying thanks. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be. So if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. So please join us today and support our advertising-free show featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. The New York Times' Justin Gillis made an interesting observation in his column at the start of this year. While the lack of strong federal authority to take action on climate change was a hindrance for President Obama, It also means that President Trump has limited authority to overturn existing U.S. efforts, which are primarily driven by the states. Gillis noted that the wind industry has become a key source of jobs in red states, which is why efforts to kill renewable energy standards there have largely failed, including a recent veto of such a bill in Ohio by former Republican presidential contender Governor John Kasich. Gillis also pointed out an interesting little curiosity. A recent federal auction for a lease to site an offshore wind farm off the coast of New York brought in $42 million, more than twice what the federal government got for oil leases in the Gulf of Mexico in August. President Trump may have the ability to renege on the commitments the U.S. made in the Paris Agreement, but perhaps ironically, domestic energy transition efforts will plow ahead because the economics are now in favor of renewables and there is no way to make coal competitive again. The energy transition is real, and Mr. Trump is not going to stop it, Gillis wrote. And, well, I couldn't agree more. Item 2. In an article published at the end of December, Nicholas Kuznets of Inside Climate News speculated that low oil prices and a new price on carbon may spell the beginning of the end for transition. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.